Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. My guest this morning is an economic development analyst. Uh, he was born in Tampa, Florida, USA, and uh, had the interesting historical experience of attending public school just as forced busing began in the, in the States. He is a PP-styled undergrad and uh, achieved a master's degree in international business and has been involved in banking, capital markets, financial engineering, and consulting from Atlanta, New York City, to London, San Francisco, Johannesburg, and Cape Town. Um, he completed a CFA qualification in Joburg in the mid-1980s, reaching an epiphany, he says, of realizing that South Africa desperately needs commercial-minded economic development expertise, and that is too true. Subsequently became a chartered accountant and uh, has rights for the business day and writes regularly for the Daily Friend, the IRR's Daily Friend. Uh, Let me welcome uh, Sean Holderman. Welcome to the program. Thanks, R. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Sean, I'd I'd sort of put, put to you the fact that there seems to be a disillusion, finally perhaps a disillusion in the states um, again, about South Africa in, in terms of its support for Russia, um, the, the whole ESCOM debacle, um, and there's a, a bill probably unlikely to go very far because it's entirely a, a Republican bill uh, in the House of Representatives to consider South Africa's, uh, you know, whether. South Africa's support of Russia should have an effect on its uh, future relationship with America. And in that respect, we look at things like, uh, um, you know, the preferential trade agreements like AGOA. And I'm generally wondering whether, essentially, I suppose, because of the romance surrounding the history of the struggle, whether the outside world has taken a little too long to regard South Africa in the with the sort of cold analysis as as it requires. And it's to that extent it's sort of got away with being what's become a, a an unsuccessful government for the people of South Africa. Your feeling on this? Right. So I, I think it's terribly blurred uh in, in terms of uh the South African uh transition after the transition, what people are supposed to be to make of that. That that would be uh, hard enough uh, from a distance. But we should also keep in mind that, you know, particularly like from an American perspective, you know, South Africa versus Africa, that gets blurred uh very, very much. Mm-hmm. And then uh the whole BRICS thing. And, and so now with so much press about Russia, but, uh, and then you'd want to make distinctions between sort of the average American and the, I don't know what language you want to use, more sophisticated, more, uh, informed, uh, maybe big city American. Uh, you know, they're, they're really much more focused on China. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that is really the bigger picture. And so South Africa, is just this kind of, in my humble opinion, it's just this bizarre footnote. And then at the same time, what are we supposed to make of that? Mm. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's a state of confusion, really. Well, um, you know, I was chatting to colleagues about the, the you know, there's always uh, some controversy when you talk about uh, the colonial legacy. And particularly if you say that there were aspects of what the colonizers left that had benefits. And 
to me, that's becoming patently clear um, in the fact that whatever one may say about the English as colonialists and um, the harshness that they visited upon much of South Africa, they they left some institutions that should have given a democratic South Africa literally a jump start ahead of almost every other country in Africa, and that was railways, ports, a banking system, um, uh, and you know energy, which ultimately developed even further. And those are, those are the sort of infrastructure, sorry, um, type of infrastructure that is almost priceless, irrespective of who provided it. And we're now seeing that in over 30 years, that infrastructure has been pretty much um, laid waste. And, you know, it, 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 it strikes me as a, as a terrible um, indictment on the ability to look at, at things on, from a very pragmatic level. And so my sense is that South Africa, post the introduction of democracy, has tended to be too ideological and, and romantic about what running a country should be about, and particularly creating an effect, a working, effective economy. Right. So uh, a, a lot of points there, and I'm, I'm tempted to answer in a bunch of different ways. But uh, one, one of the, the really big ones would be, uh, you know, are, are we objective about what, what's going on or do we do we see everything through filters that uh, people tell us, you know, we're, we're lenses that we're supposed to to view things through and, and, and kind of a opportunity to make a plug for sort of the PPE sort of background philosophy, politics and, and economics, because uh, it is pretty ideal then if that's your 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 base uh, point of departure to analyze something like South Africa. And then you can see from a, a really, uh, you know, sweeping historical perspective that colonialism was really you know, it was part of a transition from uh, a, a very old uh, style approach, which had, had really always uh, been the case that might is right. Uh, up to, you know, constitutional, uh, democracies and, and capitalism and, you know, the, the scientific revolution, which has just, uh, massively upgraded, uh, you know, personal income and, 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 and people's quality of life. And then you see colonialism as, as just being part of the creative destruction that was necessary, uh, to get there. And, you know, in, in people, if they don't want to be objective about it, then there are opportunities, uh, you know, for, for political benefit to, to shape a, uh, a political, uh, politically inspired narrative where you go, no, no, uh, colonialism was all about oppression. And then, you know, if, and if then you're coming from an environment which is really defined locally and internationally as, you know, racial, uh, injustices, then, uh, th- then the, the stage is really set to exploit that. And I think that's what's happening. The whole colonialist thing gets wrapped in that. And certainly I agree that I mean, I, I'm happy to say that for sure there were some benefits of colonialism if you see it uh, in the larger historical sweep. And then what very few people uh, appreciate is, you know, there are uh, economists, uh, a lot of uh, economic development economists cannot help but recognize that there can be advantages to patronage. And, and normally when you go from sort of a monarchy or whatever it is to constitutional democracy like in America, the next hundred years, you know, patronage ran ran wild. Uh, and, and much more recently in China, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people would make the case, who are knowledgeable about such things, you couldn't have, have had the rates of growth that they had 
if you didn't have patronage, specifically where they would take, uh, you know, local land owned by the local municipality and sell that. Um, because you had so much patronage built into the system that happened very quickly and it accelerated the development. So, you know, colonialism can sometimes, uh, have positive aspects. I think that's pretty easy to see. And then, uh, even patronage can. Is there a, because looking at the issue of patronage, particularly in the context of China or South Korea originally, is there a sort of level or degree of patronage that can allow growth as, as, as has happened in both of those examples? And then in our case, we've had patronage that has just, that has not alongside of it seen that sort of growth. Is there a, is there a magic situation or a magic amount of patronage that a country can have without um, destroying the the chance of there being uh, economic growth. So uh, I feel strongly on this one. We need to sort of uh, adjust the question a little bit. You know, if you don't have an economic vision and, and strategy, which is workable, not that much else matters. So because then uh, patronage uh, can easily just take hold as it, as it happened in South Africa, and it's going to eventually strangle the economy. Uh, but it's almost just a matter of time, you know, the level of patronage and whatnot. Whereas if you have uh, a, a very robust uh, sort of business model, growth model, which China certainly has had and, you know, other Asian tigers, you know, starting with Japan that they've had, which is mostly about value added exporting. Uh, then you can tolerate uh, elements of, of corruption and the sort of ideological aspects. And clearly I prefer capitalism. Clearly, you know, I, I would advocate for, for less patronage in almost all instances. Uh, but where, uh, the South African dialogue is really deficient is no one's advocating for, and this, I'm making a very aggressive statement here, but, but none of our leaders are advocating for a growth model, uh, which can ever uh, achieve uh, acceptable results. Can I ask you whether you, you would, one could attribute this to the fact that, um, you have a, a, a ruling party who came into power very much with its, with a socialist, communist ideology, which it was, which it was determined to, to implement and use for, for creating its economic model. And, and the only time that, that one saw any growth was, was that period during Mbeki's tenure where you actually saw growth because there was a, a more pragmatic, almost capitalist minded uh, response to what was needed for the economy. Right. Thanks for raising that. It's, it's a really important question. And so my view, and I feel very strongly about this, and I, I, I wrote, I was writing about this 20 years ago. I've written about this many, many times is that is the popular perception. And, and I, I just fail to see how it stands up to scrutiny. So you had basically five years of 5% growth. That was on the back of China's, uh, growth model, which is incredibly robust. And, and then, uh, because that was so robust, then they, you know, when they ascended to, uh, uh, full membership of the WTO, I think it was in 2001, then they began this very aggressive infrastructure program. And then you had sort of a super commodity boom. 
And, and that's what drove uh, South Africa's five years of 5% growth, because mm-hmm. then you had a stronger rand, lower interest rates, and you know, a, a property boom, uh, and a consumer boom, um, a lot of it being funded uh, you know, through consumer debt, expensive consumer debt. None of that was viable. Uh, it was the opposite of what should have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, p- people should have said, okay, this is kind of the... The, the, the last great opportunity to transition, not just politically, but also economically a, away from uh, commodities mm-hmm. uh, to value-adding exporting, which is just, you know, has raised over a billion people out of poverty. And now the proof 20 years later is we see, uh, you know, if, if you were to come up with a definition, you say, OK, uh, we look at school leavers and we want to look at 10 million uh young black adult uh, South Africans. So maybe you have to go up to age 29 or 30 or something like that to get to 10 million. About 6 million of them are unemployed and they're on their way, almost all of them, it's so sad, to being uh, permanently unemployable because, it, you know, that's just the nature of you, you stay unemployed as a young person for too long. And that all traces back. Because, and then the, the idea is we will remain a commodity exporter. Then we try to do the sum, say, well, can we pay them a subsistence mm. grant of 300 some odd rand. I mean, it's, it's that bad and people really should take that on board. So mm. our economic model is completely unworkable and, and incredibly uh, immoral. And, and, and no other country has ever had unemployment and, and then responded as casually as we have. I mean, it's interesting. I noticed there's, there's been a lot of comment in, in the press in the last few days, um, an anger on the side of uh, formal business, uh, and I would argue possibly way too late, but uh, in anger nonetheless, at the fact that the, essentially the business sector was insulted, fel- felt insulted by the president when he said, you know, don't just stand there commenting, come on board. And the business sector has basically said we we have been on board, we have been available, we've given ideas, we've made proposals, and, you know, after the president has sort of Welcome, you know, sort of welcomed our participation. Getting anything done has been virtually impossible. Nothing has worked. And kind of we are the guys who know how to do it. Right. Okay. So I, I have a lot of opinions about that. So let's say that every third one of our uh, business executives had a background, which was like uh, PPE and economic development. Uh, and you know, a lot of them are accounts. I've got nothing, uh, bad to say about accountants. It's a, it's a, a wonderful way. Uh, it's like an information management tool, you know, and, and I did that curriculum well over 30 years ago. Uh, and I'm still incredibly respectful. However, the real insights to deal with a, a challenge like what South Africa has should be a much broader perspective. You know, again, the philosophy, the, the ec- economics and, and, and the political science, the political theory, and, and then a whole lot more knowledgeable about how economic development works in the 21st century. And then what would just jump out at you, okay, is one, that all of our problems that we focus on that we see, you know, like Eskom and the like, um, you know, they're eminently manageable compared to our youth unemployment crisis. Countries mm-hmm. don't let this happen because – it borders on being non-fixable. And to mm-hmm. give you an idea, and, and I've got tremendous respect for, for what the CEOs are up against, and I, I certainly side with them, and I don't think it was at all okay what, what Ramaphosa said about uh, they're not coming to, to the party. I don't think it's right at all. Um, but, you know, you still have the, the problem that where government and big business came together was about investment-led growth, and that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense, or it made a lot of sense 10 years ago or so. But mm-hmm. now, I mean – 
our unemployment situation, uh, youth unemployment situation is such a massive threat to the basic social fiber of the country. And there is no way, imagine, put that in a spreadsheet that you're going to have any sort of noticeable impact on that through investment-led growth. It, 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 so, so there is just this huge, the, the, the dialogue that we're supposed to be having, we're, we're not close. Um, so, Sean, obviously the next question is what should we be doing? We should look at, okay, what have been the great successes of the last 30 years? And there's really, uh, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the the common denominator is you integrate in the global economy. It it is like industrialization. So industrialization, people talk about the fourth industrial revolution. You know, the the much bigger picture is uh, industrialization is old school. Most of the jobs now being created globally are in the services sectors and and the like. And, And really... Uh, where you create a massive growth engine, just, you know, all of the, the high performing countries have worked this out is you integrate into global supply chains. And that runs completely counter to the, the ANC's approach of localization. Uh, and look in big businesses is, is not, they're not well placed to play a, uh, an effective role here. And a lot of it has to do with the regulations, but we'll, we will not, uh, begin to make any meaningful sort of dent in our youth unemployment crisis until we shift towards integrated and global supply chains. And, and, you know, the, the, the motor car industry is, is the most distorted industry in the world, I guess, next mm-hmm. to steel. So it, it will be in like thousands of, of little sectors where entrepreneurs identify here are the opportunities where South Africans can integrate a global economy and add value. And, and those are beyond our imagination. We'll, we'll, we'll just be shocked to, to see that. Well, perhaps there's a little example um, of of the potential because South Africans are not known for you know uh, being shy to come up with something new. Um, I saw the other day that the, the Spur Group hamburger restaurant um, had tripled its uh, its profits in the last year, and this was largely due to exactly, I guess, the services sector that you're talking about. It was tourism in the Cape has picked up and grown, and it's it that essentially, in in a nutshell, was the reason for it. For, for its great profits. Right. Well, um, tourism is, is kind of like maybe midwifing us. I don't know if that's an appropriate expression, but in, into global integration. But I mean, there's a problem. Um, you know, I'm Cape based and it's wonderful here and the tourists, uh, you know, they say wonderful things and Richard Quest from CNN was just here and he was falling <laughs> over himself to say how great the Cape Tonians are at welcoming tourists. And I think that's true. I mean, I have lots and lots of friends, uh, you know, from overseas who come here and they, they can't believe how wonderful it is. However, 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 there's also the press and, uh, you know, there, there's also the, the, the problems on the ground that, that go beyond, uh, you know, just the, the, the load shedding that, you know, in crime is going to be on the rise and you just, mm-hmm. you, you just can't tolerate this level of, of youth unemployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be social upheaval and, and some of it will be politically inspired. Um, and, and so tourism is very much at risk. So we should really be thinking about it. Look, I mean, I know people. I mean, I, I mean people, you know, th- through nothing related to work, just just casually walking around meeting people who are, you know, half my age or whatever, but they have jobs where, you know, they add value in global supply chains and there is no South African government link and there is no South African big business mm-hmm. link. And oftentimes they taught themselves online as well. And people really need to take a step back and think, hang on, 
if that's happening and those people are doing that, I mean, maybe we should be having like job fairs in high schools where just the high school students get up. There's, there's no one from the outside. And they say, well, this is what my older brother did. This is what my little sister did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm making it up in kind of a fanciful way, but, but it's reality and, 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 that, and that could happen. No, I, I, I think I think one of the problems is uh, sometimes, or perhaps not sometimes, a lot of the time, the small business sector, um, and it's not always entrepreneurs because they're, for me, as far as I'm concerned, they're an unusual breed. But people who've just been able to establish, based on their own experience, small businesses have to deal with the being almost shut out to some extent, not just by business, not sorry, not just by government, but by big business as well. They, it's just, there are way too many restrictions on people being able to, to get up and create something new and useful. Well, well, let me just build on that. So I, I, I think the investors, you know, and, and, and I'm not like criticizing them, but you know, again, if they had like a PPE economic development perspective, they go, hang on, you know, we, the, the core problem is, you know, it, it's like, you know, if, if you don't have oil in your car and you stop and you put the best petrol in, you know, you're not addressing the problem. The mm-hmm. problem we have in this country, it, it's not the investment flows. So you have, uh, you know, private investors supporting, you know, young people, whatever, with innovative ideas. But if their customers are South African, they're not on the right track because the, the core problem, you just cannot create the six million jobs or make any serious stand in that unless you're tapping into overseas consumers and if they come here as tourists that's great and and as i say that's like a stepping stone uh but that's the limits to that and i'm not not sure how optimistic we should be long term about that versus if people just find all these innovative ways to add value within supply chains and there's all these misperceptions around that you know you could have someone who is not well educated at all but look it's a huge thing if they're young if they have the adaptability of being young Okay, then they see where they're going to provide something, you know, whatever that something is. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. And it could even be the capacity to deal with tedium, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and people just wouldn't think, you know, it's only the, the most elite, the most, the best educated, the super performers who are globally relevant. That's not true. And if I could make another point, I mean, again, in some economics, just real quickly here. So to, to make a serious dent, uh, in our unemployment crisis, uh, by growing the local economy, it would have to be like a third larger. Okay. And it, it's barely keeping up with population growth. I mean, it really isn't actually. Mm-hmm. So to get the third larger is, is, you know, it could be a generation away. Uh, literally it could, it could take that long. Uh, and even then you'd have a terrible, terrible, terrible problem because we have an imbalance, uh, between the supply and demand of labor because we have so much low skilled labor okay mm-hmm. but a lot of those people are young and in and, and the global economy it's not like that at all you know there, there's not an overabundance of low skilled young people who are english speaking and and can be motivated to perform mm-hmm. um and and so that really is where we should be going and there, there's not there's really not much going on there at all there's a thought i mean we're, we're looking at the i think the minister of of basic education saying, you know, they're, they're going to sort of concentrate on improving the quality of uh, rural, you know, education in rural areas. And I thought we're in a sort of a quagmire of inaction, um, including just getting rid of stuff, not, not, not putting in place things to inhibit people's ability to find a way of, uh, of making, of making a decent living. 
Right. Well, well I mean, the, the soft science, uh, sciences, uh, economics use, use this term, uh, expression normative versus positivist. I mean, it's really is, uh, just saying, okay, uh, what is actually durable versus the ideal? And, and so our dialogues often get around, okay, what's the ideal? You know, we have some, uh, you know, moral imperative, you know, social justice, inequality, whatever to go for the ideal. Well, we really need a, a transition strategy and the transition strategy. I mean, it really could be, I mean, things are changing very quickly with chat GPT. You could take some young 16, 18 year old person who is scholastically really nowhere. Uh, but yet has the enthusiasm and the aspirations of a young 16, 18 year old person. And you say, look, we really need you to do this. And you mm. find it do a great job. Mm. And it's also a numbers thing and it's also statistics. And it could be that, you know, the, uh, uh, it could be, uh, a third or half of our 16 year old, 18 year olds aren't going to really find uh, a place anytime soon in the global economy, but it could, it could be not difficult at all to employ a third. And so another point to keep in mind in that regard is that of like the six million young people who are in all likelihood permanently unemployed, at least if we had normal economic policies, this goes back to having like a, a workable growth model, at least two million of those would be employed in global supply chains. But we've closed the door on that, you know, mm-hmm. through localization policies and, and BEE and just being anti-business. Mm-hmm. Sean, unfortunately, I have to end it there. Um, I was hoping we would solve the country's problems completely by the time this interview ended, but it seems not. Thank you so much um, for putting these perspectives to us and giving us uh, something broader to add to our thinking on the, the economic issues that bedevil the society. Thanks to you and your audience, Sarah. All the best.